0: Mojave Beach
1: Productions, Mojave Beach Productions, and the voice of Halana bring you stories of faith and inspiration. Made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International.
0: Mojave Beach Productions and The Voice of Helona present Dear Dean, Love Mom. Made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International and narrated by Esther Luttrell. Episode 6 The
1: elderly homeowners decided to stay on in California indefinitely. They urged Larry and me to remain where we were and wrote up a lease option that would allow us to eventually purchase the place. A week or so later, Larry and I were in Mount Dora supermarket looking over the produce when an attractive woman in, oh, maybe her early 70s, picked up a tomato and she said to me, Expensive, aren't they? (laughs) Must be filled with gold, I responded. Larry gave me one of those looks that bordered on pity. He knew I was about to hear a story. I didn't know it, but he did. I continued to check out the pricey tomatoes while while vaguely aware that the woman was still watching me. Finally, I met her eyes and I, I gave her a tentative smile. That's when she appeared to make a decision. She said what she must have been trying to muster up the courage to say. May I tell you something personal? Larry rolled his eyes and stepped away from us. Of course, I said without hesitation. Sure. Even with my encouragement, she seemed uncertain. I waited patiently. Larry was nowhere to be seen. With a small clearing of her throat, she began. My husband and I live in a little house in the country. We were married more than 50 years. She smiled a bit self-consciously. The other day he didn't feel so good, so he just sat in his favorite chair in the living room, which wasn't like him at all he's the kind that likes to stay busy always fixing this and that around the property but i saw he wasn't he wasn't looking like his usual self so i told him to just stay put and i'd bring him something cool to drink well, i went out in the kitchen and i made him a glass of iced tea and then i went ahead with what i had to do thinking he just needed a little rest and he'd be fine half hour or so went by and i looked in on him But he was asleep and i thought well now that's good a a nap that'll make him feel better he'll be all right i really wasn't too worried it crossed my mind that she didn't seem to be talking to me so much as she was talking to herself i wondered if maybe she needed to get all of this out and maybe had nobody else to tell it seemed odd that she would relate this kind of story to a stranger beside her at the tomato bin but You know, in retrospect, it was no more odd than the stories I'd heard on the phone over the last few years from strangers across the country. Anyway, I gave her my complete attention, knowing that what she was saying was vitally important to her. Well, pretty soon I looked in on him again, she continued. He, I don't know, it it seemed to me like, like he'd passed out or something. Well, I went to him and I called his name. Then I kneeled down in front of him and and I took his hand, but he didn't open his eyes. Her expression darkened, remembering. I thought, oh dear Lord, what should I do? I went to the phone and I dialed 911. We live off the main road. It's really hard to find if you've never been there before. There's a long trail up to our house with a gate way down by the mailbox. Well, I knew the paramedics wouldn't be able to get in if I didn't go down there and open the gate. So I ran outside and I hurried down the road, and oh my goodness, my heart was just hammering. I didn't know what was wrong with him. He'd never been sick, not a day. Well, I got to the gate, and I unlocked it and pushed it open. Then I turned around and ran back to the house just as fast as I could get there. I I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I saw. He was still sitting in the chair, but when I came through the door, well, he was looking at me with the sweetest smile on his face. I fell down on my knees in front of him, and, and I grabbed his hands. Oh, he looked so good i hadn't seen him look like that since oh since he was maybe 25 years old she gave me a look that begged me to understand the significance of what she was describing he'd had an accident a year or so ago knocked out his front teeth well not really out but cracked them and they'd started turning dark but here he was now smiling at me happy as he could be in his teeth his teeth they were perfect She shook her head, marveling at the memory. Her face had taken on a radiance. I thought, well, how can that be? How can he look like he did when he was 25? But he did. And then he took my hand and I kissed his knuckles. I just held it to my cheek and I wanted to burst with gratitude that he was okay, that he looked so good. Then I heard the ambulance coming up the road and, and I let go of him and I ran to the door to let him in. Even though he seemed fine, I was thinking that maybe he should go on to the hospital for a checkup or something. I had my back to my husband when I opened the door and told the paramedics that he seemed to be all right, but I still wanted them to take him on to the hospital. I said something like, um, you can see how good he looks now, but a while ago, I thought for sure I'd lost him. And that's when I turned to him again to show them how good he looked. Her face crumbled in disbelief as she relived the story. But he was different than a minute ago. I could tell that he, he was. She couldn't finish the sentence. She was at a loss. Her eyes filled with pain. I put my hand on her shoulder and, and I gave her a little sympathetic squeeze. He was gone, she whispered, dead. The tears were close to exploding out of her. But he'd look so good and his teeth, I don't understand. I never heard of anything like that. Have you? I pulled her close. She was several inches shorter than I. She let me hold her, this stranger at the tomato bin. No, I said, I don't understand, except to think that he was letting you know that he really is okay. He wanted to leave you with that, the knowledge that he feels as good as when he was 25. She nodded. I don't think she could say anything else, but then neither could I. Larry reappeared then and said we should be leaving, that they were wanting to close the store. I gave the woman another little hug. Then I left her there in the produce department, baffled, hurting, remembering, mostly trying to understand. I don't even know her name and she doesn't know mine. Dear Lord, I thought going home, There's so much we don't get. Life is so much bigger and it takes in so much more than we can comprehend. We only see a teeny tip of what's out there for us to know. And most of what we see is a blur because we're so caught up in things that don't matter one iota, not in the long run. I talked to Dean a very long time that night about the lady and her husband and what she experienced. Had Dean met her husband on the other side? Did Dean understand the widow's need and nudge her to the produce department in that supermarket? At the same time, nudging me to the same location? Did he understand how much she longed to tell her story and that I would listen? And it wasn't a matter of just being in that particular store at that particular tomato bin, but also the hour we met by chance. It was near closing time. As I recall, the store was open until midnight. Why did Larry and I go to the store at that hour? I can't remember ever having done that before. Was it Destiny? Or was it Dean? Or do the angels assign certain spirits to carry out Destiny? I had no answers. In fact, for all I knew, hers was simply another story. I was to turn into a screenplay. Over the years, since Donald and I gave our first workshop, I've managed to stay in contact with the majority of our students. Joanne Bodner was one of the few in our tiny Kansas City class back in October of 1994. A woman in her mid-thirties at the time, Joan was then, and still is, happily married to an artist. From the first time I met her, I loved her sense of humor and her sharp mind. Not surprisingly, she very quickly, after that first class, turned out one of the best screenplays I've ever read. She's come this close to a Hollywood sale so many times, but at the last moment it seems to always do what Hollywood's famous for doing. The deal simply evaporates. I've often said that Hollywood is one of the few places in the world where you can starve to death while everyone's patting you on the back telling you what a genius you are. Nevertheless, Joanna's kept right on plugging away, never giving up, and her upbeat emails They always brighten my day. When I was invited to give a two-day workshop as a part of the East Coast Writers' Conference in Providence, Rhode Island, I jumped at the chance. Larry and I had separated, and I was alone in the big Florida house. Out-of-state workshops, where I was an invited guest as opposed to being the producer-organizer, were a welcome diversion. I asked Anne-Marie Gellin to join me and was delighted to get an email from Joanne Bodner saying that she planned to attend as well. Another writer, former student, Elsie Austin, had also become a close friend, and she she flew in from Georgia to be with us. I had met Elsie when Donald and I gave a workshop at Burt Reynolds Ranch in Jupiter, Florida a couple of years before, and we'd stayed friends ever since. As much as I enjoyed the few days in beautiful Providence, especially reuniting with Elsie and Joanne and Anne-Marie. I didn't have even one person come up to me to tell a story of some strange phenomena that brought them to the workshop. Everybody seemed to be in the class to learn how to write a screenplay, and not because they were compelled by any spiritual prodding. It wasn't until I moved back to the Midwest in 2002 and was making one of my first attempts at writing this book that Joanne shared with me what she had experienced in Providence. By that time I was living in Topeka, Kansas, only an hour's drive from where Joanne lived in Missouri. Every now and then we'd meet near Kansas City for lunch. And one day over Panera's great broccoli cheese soup, I confided that I was trying to write a book about the things that had happened to me spiritually since Dean's death. We talked about the woman who called from Florida whose son had committed suicide and how I saw him with Dean outside my window when we were on the phone. We talked about the tragic loss of Diane Hooper's children after a shark attack, and about the way in which these two women came to call me under more than unusual circumstances. I confess that I felt overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility to share their stories, but that I, I still wasn't certain of the purpose of it all. Surely, surely Dean isn't bringing me these people and their stories so that I can turn them into screenplays, I said. It would take me years. And even then, I don't know how I could sell them. However, the one thing I was certain of, I told her, was that it had some point behind it. There was something I was supposed to do, but I hadn't figured out yet what it was. A few days later, I mentioned to Joanne during a telephone conversation that I was attempting to find those past students who had stories to tell and get their permission to use their names also to refresh my memory of the details. That afternoon, Joan sent me the following email. Sunday, October 22, 2.08 p.m. Central Standard Time. Hi, Esther. I don't have a story that brought me to your workshop, but I do absolutely believe you are correct. In my case, it may well be my brother and sister who had ganged up on me on the other side with Dean to lead me to you. One thing I do have to share with you, is related. At one of your workshops, I believe I've attended about four of them now, I had a clear vision of Dean standing behind you, looking over your shoulder at those of us in the audience. It was at the end of the workshop. You were seated on a stool and you were telling us about Dean. He was almost hamming it up. He looked over your shoulder at the audience, then at you, then back at us with a huge grin. He was very pleased with you. If he had spoken, I got the feeling he would be saying, How about my mom, huh? (laughs) Since getting your message, I have given some thought as to which workshop it was. It seems logical that it would have been at UMKC, University of Missouri in Kansas City. But I think it was the one in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm almost certain it was. While you might not remember it, I came up to you after the workshop, and you hugged me, and I told you your dean was looking over your shoulder, smiling this afternoon. Well, good luck on the book. Much love, Joanne. I realize now how I missed the significance of what she had said at the time it happened. Many students approached me after the workshop to say things like, your son must be so proud of what you're doing, or I have a feeling Dean was right here with us telling us how proud of you he is. So when Joan remarked that he was looking over my shoulder, I'm sure I didn't understand that she was speaking literally. Like I keep saying, There's so much I didn't get, not for a very, very long time. Joanne's email was written just seven days after I had given a workshop in a Missouri university town. The following email is a response to the query I sent out to all of the students who had ever taken my workshop, asking how they came to be in the class and whether or not an unusual occurrence had prompted their attendance. I always end every workshop by telling them my reason for teaching the classes that I'm trying to do for others what I wish I had done for Dean. I reminded those to whom I was sending emails that my goal was to write a book about Dean's tremendous influence not only on me even after all these years, but on those he prompts to connect with me from the other side. Out of respect for the privacy of the writer whose email I'm about to share with you, I'm going to call her Sandra. Esther, this is just a quick note really. I'll write more later, but I was at your workshop and reading your email and honestly, it took my breath away. I attended the workshop on October 20th. Where was I on October 19th? At the trial of the woman who killed my father back in January. He was only 42 when he died. At first, I didn't think I'd be able to make it to your workshop. It's something I wanted to do, but the trial was in another state, and while my original plan was not to go down until it was close to the end, my uncle appeared at my house Thursday night. The trial was moving more swiftly than we thought, and Friday could well have been its last day. I didn't know what to do, but I wasn't going to miss the trial. I prayed that I might find a way to be able to do everything I needed. I sent an email to my boss, and off I went. I didn't come home until that night, yes, we made the drive there and back, it did turn out to be the last day as the woman on trial was the final witness. I stayed up until 3 that morning talking to my best friend, knowing that no matter how tired I was and waiting for a jury to return a verdict, I really wanted to be at your workshop. It was one of the best experiences I had had in a very long time. When I got home, I had a message from my grandfather. The jury had come back with a guilty verdict during the day. How I found out about your workshop was also a complete accident. A friend of mine was on the mailing list for the location of the workshop, and she forwarded the announcement to me. I never even knew she was interested enough in the place to be on their list, but I was grateful nevertheless. Sandra. My response edited only enough to protect her identity. Oh my darling girl, what an amazing story, so tragic. How in the world did you manage to concentrate that Saturday in the workshop? And here's another odd bit for whatever it's worth or isn't worth. I noticed you in particular and felt a special affinity toward you. I have no idea why, but perhaps it was your attitude. You were very special in that group. Did Dean tap me on the shoulder and whisper in my ear? She's the one mom. I know her dad, because I felt a connection with you, although I couldn't imagine why. My heart goes out to you, hon. Please know that I'm here to help you however I can in guiding you toward your writing goals. I can't believe how strong you are. God bless, Esther. Reading that email again years after the fact, I'm led to wonder what it is that draws our attention to one particular person in a large group. I did notice Sandra that Saturday, and I did feel a strong connection to her. I don't remember speaking to her personally that day, in fact, I'm almost certain I didn't, though I do recall addressing some of my remarks about screenwriting and marketing to her directly. Of course, I had no idea of the ordeal she was going through, or the sacrifice she'd made in attending the workshop. Or, at some other level, perhaps I did. I mentioned earlier that once you open the door to one aspect of spirituality, other doors seem to open that are related yet different. Once I acknowledged without misgiving or question that the other side is simply one more step in life, it was as if I could glimpse so much more than what I had been able to see before. One night, a few months before Larry and I parted, he and I went to dinner with our neighbors, Diane and Roland Reed. Upon our return, we got out of our car and we were all going into the house to visit a little before calling it a day, when we heard the plaintive whine of a dog, obviously in pain. We stopped to listen. The sound was coming from the road, although none of us had noticed a dog when we turned in at our driveway. Larry and Roland hurried toward the canine yelp that was sounding more urgent by the second. When they came back, Larry had a beagle in his arms. She had obviously been hit by a car. An all-night emergency animal hospital was located not too far away. When Larry returned from there an hour or so later, he was carrying a tail-wagging cutie with a heavily bandaged leg. For weeks, we watched the newspaper for missing dog notices, but none appeared that fit the uh, beagle's description. Her leg healed, though she was left with a serious limp. Soon, however, she was able to sit beside my husband on the riding moor, a treat she obviously relished. Larry named her Shadow because, well, she was always tagging along beside him. On certain days, Shadow's limp was more pronounced than others. At those times, she would hold her leg up close to her body and walk on the other three. A good-natured little thing, it was hard to accept that she was suffering. The vet assured us that we had done all we could. Shadow would simply have to learn to live with the aftermath of the accident. When Larry went to Miami to live with his mother, he left Shadow with me and she fit in with the other furry kids, and I really had come to love her. But it just killed me to see her on those days when she could hardly get around. One summer afternoon was especially difficult for her. The temperature had climbed well over a 100 degrees, and Shadow seemed to be in, in a great deal of distress. She was hot, and she was limping, but worse, and totally out of character for this happy little girl, she whined. That wasn't like Shadow finally i picked her up and i took her into a room where i could lay her down on a cool tile floor then i sat beside her pulling her head into my lap she watched me with complete trust as i began to tell her about god and god about shadow i knew that shadow was his child his creation and that he loved her i turned shadow over to our father's tender loving care knowing that he would heal her and that the healing had already taken place i had only to acknowledge and accept it i held shadow's paw between my palms and promised her that she would never limp again i knew it to be so and it was when i climbed to my feet she sprang to hers looking up at me and merrily wagging her tail as we left the room I watched her run to the other animals, watched her frolic and play, and I knew the truth of her healing. She was indeed God's child, and she would never limp again. When I moved from Mount Doris some time later, I couldn't take her with me, and so I gave her to a farm family who adored her. A few months later, I called to ask how she was doing. They gave me a glowing report, including how the children doted on her. I made a remark, of oh, something like, um... How's her front leg, is she having a problem with it? The reply was slow in coming. No, why would she? Well, she used to have a pretty bad limp, the result of being hit by a car when we first got her. I never saw her limp, she's fine, just fine. I have no healing power. I can't lay hands on someone and see them wondrously cured, but once in a while, I do remember that we are God's children, made in His likeness. When I fully accept that, no questions asked, praying not for something to happen, but giving thanks because it already happened, even when I can't yet see the physical manifestation, God shows me that my thinking is right. I know it's difficult not to challenge what I'm saying. I'm not a religious philosopher or a psychic or anything remotely like that. I'm just a mother who lost her boy and who's been blessed by his presence from the other side. Yet, I can't help but notice when someone says something like, I've got this or that malady. Like they seem, they seem to do it in a way that affirms the affliction, as if they possess it and even seem to want to possess it. It's mine and you can't take it away from me. That seems to be the message they're sending. It's as if some people thrive on their ills, you know? They can hardly wait to tell you this hurts and that hurts. I always wonder if in the telling, it doesn't establish whatever the physical ailment might be even more firmly. Talking about it perhaps gives it an acceptance, a home. One could argue that not talking about something isn't going to make it go away, and they'd have a good point. But I counter with the evidence produced by ulcers. As I understand an ulcer, It begins with a thought process. Worry and undue stress results in an ulcer. In a word, a thought manifests itself physically. It becomes a tangible thing that is medically treatable. I find that amazing. If a thought process can produce such negative results, why can't a thought process produce positive results? Doesn't that seem less metaphysical than it does logical? I said that two instances come to mind. Shadow was the first. The second involves my mother. She'd been in the hospital only a few days, but I knew her time on earth was coming to a close. The doctor said her vital signs were strong and that she would soon be going home, but I knew in my heart that that just wasn't so. The drive from the Jacksonville hospital where she was staying back to Mount Dora took me through several miles of State Forest. I tried to time my visit to mom so i would be out of those woods before it got dark it was not a place i'd want to have a flat tire as i drove home one evening i'd reached a point oh about midway in the forest when i suddenly saw a huge picture of my mother flash up on the hood of my car i recognized the image immediately when i was about 13 she and my aunt betty and i were walking along a downtown tampa street when a photographer stepped in front of us. But back in those days, street photographers were common. They would snap your picture right there on the spot, and you could purchase it for a dollar. Oh, that was revolutionary! Instant photos! Wow! <sighs> when a street photographer popped out in front of us, offering his services, Mom stopped and stood smiling. And she was in front of a Three Sisters department store, as I recall. And she was wearing a simple white dress, and she tucked her black purse up under her arm. Her dimples were prominently displayed in the picture. It was well worth a buck. And now, years later, in the middle of a Florida forest, the picture loomed in front of me, maybe maybe seven or eight feet high. I was shocked, and then I thought, oh, I'll bet Mom just passed over. I wondered what time it might be and turned on the radio since the car had no clock and the news was just coming on, which meant it was 5 o'clock. At that hour in January, it was already dark. The minute I got back home, I called the hospital to ask about Mother's condition, and I was surprised to hear that it was unchanged. She was holding her own. Well, if that was true, I wondered, then what was the vision of Mama's picture all about? The following morning, I awoke to the ringing of the phone. It was still dark outside. A male nurse on the other end of the line told me that Mother was passing. Since I was more than 80 miles away, there was no way I could get to the hospital in time to be with her. Do you want to stay on the line, he asked. I can walk you through to the end. Yes, please. He reported that she was peaceful and that her favorite nurse was with her. In his soft, soothing voice, he detailed the next few moments as she slipped out of this world into the next. And when he said, finally, she's gone, I asked the time. It was 5 a.m. I hoped that Dean was there to embrace her. I hoped the other side was a place Mama found more pleasant than she seemed to find earth. I've never sensed her presence, never seen her again. But I know she's in God's loving arms. His girl has come home to him. Dean has helped me understand that and to be at peace with it.
0: You've been listening to Dear Dean, Love, Mom told by its author Esther Luttrell and brought to you by The Voice of Halona in association with Mojave Beach Productions. The Voice of Halona theme was composed and performed by David Randa of Fezlian Studios. Patrick McGrenahan produced. This production was recorded by Dean Fairweather. Funding for Dear Dean, Love, Mom was made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International. A nonprofit organization dedicated to the support of all aspects of forgiveness in families, communities, businesses, and personal relationships. Visit their website at ForgivenessFoundationInternational.com. This is Jeff Evans inviting you to soar on the wings of imagination to Mojave Beach Productions World of Audio Entertainment. Music Mojave Beach Productions.
1: I just want to take a moment to thank you for soaring with us on the wings of imagination as you listen to stories we're having so much fun creating for you. If you enjoy what you hear, take a moment to subscribe to Mojave Beach Productions on your favorite podcast app. And thanks a million.